Well, we're going to continue our study on Abraham's journey of faith. Now, we saw the last week that a couple of the things we touched on last week was uh, the enemy's not always in unity. They're not, not in unison all the time. They don't have a playbook that they run from. And sometimes there's conflict in the, in the demonic universe. But the one thing that we have over them is we have the ability to be unified in our, in our pursuit of God and the holiness that God requires of us. And our unity, operated in faith, will always overcome disunity. So continue to trust God and be in unison with your brothers and sisters. We also learn that sometimes God intervenes in our life and calls us to do things, calls us to action. And whether we want to or not, or whether we're a part of it or not, sometimes God calls us to step out and to take action as he did with Abraham. Sometimes God calls us to stay still. Sometimes God calls us to pray, but sometimes God calls us to just step out and, and work. So now we come to the part where Abraham's already defeated the enemies, those, those kings and stuff that were battling him last week. He defeats them. He gets Lot back and all the people and the, pre, or the possessions that they had. But right after this, he's going to have another test. And as most of you know, you've probably experienced this yourself. Every time you have a great victory, a great overcoming in the, in the power of God, there's always going to be an immediate, an immediate test. And that's exactly what happened with Abraham. And a lot of times when you get these victories, these tests come in the form of pride, come in the form of I can do anything. And rather than seeking God, you just run out and do it because, hey, I had this victory here. Maybe I can do it again there without seeking God. Out. And that's exactly what happened with Israel. When they, they attacked Jericho, they, they, the walls came down, they came in, they conquered it, and instantly they thought, hey, Ai's a little town, let's go get them. And what happened? They were defeated. <clears throat> Elijah went up on the mountain, beat 450 of Baal's prophets, called on fire from heaven, and right after that, he gets scared by what the, the queen said, and he runs off in fear. So it's easy to have a victory, have God do something awesome in your life, powerful in your life, and then right after that, the enemy comes in to kind of steal that victory from you. So I came across a quote that says, Scottish pastor Andrew Bonar says this, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. And after every victory, after, after every spiritual battle, you're going to be offered two options. And that's exactly what happened with Abraham. One of them sounds good, although worldly, and the other one is God's option. Genesis 14, 17 says this, after Abraham returned from defeating Kedolomar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaba, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So Abraham gets his victory, he gets everything back, and instantly he's faced with two choices. King Bera, and the name Bera means gift. And he is from Sodom, and Sodom literally means burning. How ironic is that? Melchizedek, however, means, his name means king of righteousness. And Salem, as you know, means peace. So he's got the world offering him things, and he's got God offering him things right after this victory. And Bela was, or Bera was basically bargaining for Abraham, offering him things if he would go Bera's way, wanting him to bow down and accept his terms to receive these blessings, these things. Now, 
Abraham just won this battle. He had all these things in his possession. It's easy to think that we deserve it. I mean, Abraham won the battle. Shouldn't he deserve to have these things, these spoils of war? But a lot of times we think that we deserve things that we've got the victory over. We're, we think we deserve accolades. We, just think, we think we deserve material possessions. But not always. Now, it wasn't about the blessings. Blessings come from God. The problem was here was what he had to do to receive the blessings. If he wanted Barah's blessings, if he wanted what Barah was offering him, he would have to kowtow to that, answer Barah's demands for these things. Now, we're going to see what that is in a moment. And I, I read that and I thought, you know what? The blessings of the enemy, what appear to be blessings, what appear to be great things, always comes with conditions. There's always going to be something that is required of you to receive them. And usually, or almost always, every time you do, it costs you more and it's more painful and it never works out. So even though it looks good and it's something that you think you deserve, those blessings are always conditional and they always bring you down. Abraham turned to God in this moment of decision. Genesis 14, 18 says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be, blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, we all know there's a lot of symbolism between Melchizedek and Jesus. Melchizedek was God's high priest in the Old Testament. Jesus, right now, is our high priest. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. So Melchizedek was a high priest to Abraham. Jesus is our high priest. Bread and wine, as we know, is the foreshadowing of the suffering and the sacrifice of Christ, remembered in our act of communion. So when we're faced with times like these, especially after a great victory, you're going to be offered two choices, what to do. Automatically, we ought to go to God first before we make any snap decisions. But enemy, he keeps pushing on. In verse 21, it says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the things for yourself. How many times have you heard the phrase, use things, love people? The world has kind of shifted that around a little bit to where it says, use people and love things. And we see that a lot in the world today. And he was basically saying to Abram, look, you won, you deserve them, you keep them. Don't worry about the people. I'll take care of the people. Let me have those. You can have the material possessions. The enemy always wants you to choose things over people. God loves people. God doesn't love things. God wants us to have the same attitude, that we love people, and we use the things that God gives us to bless others. Look at it this way. The number one person the enemy wants in your life is who? It's you. He wants you. If he can get you by giving you things, then he's already won. And the enemy will continue to pressure you and push you and draw you in by offering you things. He wants to use your bodies and therefore destroy your spiritual walk. Joseph, 
Daniel were both offered things in exchange for their bodies, right? Joseph with the Potiphar's wife and Daniel with the, the food and all that. And he, neither of them acquiesced to that. And because of that, they were blessed. They did not give in to things by giving up their body. On the other hand, you have Samson, you have David, and you have Judas who also were offered the same thing. They were offered something, something in place of their life, their body, their spiritual walk. And every time in each of those three, they failed. And when you saw Judas, he never came back. Samson came back at the end and David came back, but they all, it cost them all. Every time they sacrificed their spiritual walk, their life with God, in order to get things, it cost them severely. Genesis 14, 22 says, But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will not accept anything belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you'll never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and share that belongs to and." and eaten in the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Enar, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Now, what he did, Abraham rejected Bera's offer. In other words, he left everything in exchange for the people. I'll take the people. You can have the things. He could have rightly accepted both. He was a victor. He could have taken the spoils. But he knew he wasn't going to accept Bera's offer, and so he rejected both. And he did not want anyone to get credit for what God had done. God was the one who gave him the victory. It wasn't bare. It wasn't circumstance. It wasn't things around him. It was God that gave him the victory. And had he accepted Bera's offer of material things, people would have thought, well, Bera gave him the things. Bera let him win. It was his, his accolades rather than God's. And... He did not want to be indebted to anyone. He did not want to be indebted to Bera for giving him something that was already his. Now, he could, he could have been indebted by two ways, by witness or testimony or by force. Suppose he had taken these things from Bera. Not only would Bera have had him in a compromising situation, he could have, Bera could have come back after him, demanding those things back, taken him back by force, or his testimony, which I think is more powerful, that would have been hurt. He would no longer be able to say God did it with a clear conscience. He would look around to the people looking at him and think, these people know that I took stuff, so it wouldn't be God's victory. His testimony would have been hurt as well. Again, remember, he was sent to be a witness to that area that he lived in. People were supposed to see God in him and the power of God working in him. Had he taken the material possessions he would have put a stain on that testimony. It would not have been a, a full glorification to God because he took back things that he shouldn't have taken back. And people would have looked at that and say, well, Abraham is successful now. He's blessed now because he took bare stuff rather than uh, trusting God to provide it for him. Another thing that would have probably bothered him was in his own mind, in the back of his mind, could he faithfully say to himself that God has brought me this far if he had all these possessions that, that people gave him. I've said this before. Our, our pastor in our previous church used to tell our church, if you have a really a severe need, 
take it to God. Don't tell people, take it to God. Because people are, will probably bless you. They'll probably do things for you. They'll give you what you need. But you'll never know if it was God. But if you take it to God and don't tell anybody, and then someone meets the need, you'll know it was God. And so by Abraham not taking this, he was putting full trust and faith in God to provide. And he'll never have to look back and wonder to himself, was it God? Was it Barah? What, what was going on? How did this happen? This way, his faith is secure, and he will see God working in a powerful way. Now, Christians have to be careful when it comes to accepting applause or gifts from the world. Because a lot of times, we, once we start receiving accolades and, and appreciation and gifts, it may make us not have trust and faith. If we keep getting supplied from outside people without God being involved, we may come to the same situation. Is God doing it? Or is people doing it? And when you become like that, what happens is you become two different people. The person you are inside church becomes different from the person you are outside church. If you're only in it for the accolades and the applause and the things that people may give you because of who you are, because you act differently in the world than you do at church, then you might want to check your faith because you're operating on the physical, what people can give you, rather than trusting God to provide it for you. Now, if you have to act differently in the world, if you have to act differently in your job, you have to act differently with your family or whatever, if you have to act like two different people, then your faith is probably in need of reparation because you're allowing that, you're allowing their impressions of you and what they do for you when you act like a certain thing, when you have, if you have to do things at work in order to keep your job that you know aren't right, that means you're not trusting God to keep the job for you. If you have to behave a certain way in front of your friends or your family, or otherwise they'll ostracize you, then you're not trusting God to keep you in that situation, and you're not letting your witness come forth. You can't be two different people inside church and outside church. Now, another thing we noticed is once this was done, once the, all this thing was, you know, people were delivered and people were rescued, we have no idea what happened to the people that came back with Abraham. Did they go back with Abraham to his land? Did they return to Sodom like Lot eventually did? We have no idea. So once again, we see that being obedient to God, you may not see an immediate response to that. You may not see what you think you're going to see. You may not see people falling down and getting saved and, and tremendous blessing by being obedient. But our job, again, is to be obedient and let the results up to God. Now, the enemy is going to come right after you, right after a victory in your life. He's going to come and push things on you. While you're in a state of weakness, you're in a state of, I don't know, pride is the right word, but you're, you're excited. Your, your, your adrenaline's going. You just won. God did a great thing. And that's the perfect time for the enemy to come in and start tweaking with you. And you don't have to ask. You don't have to wonder. He's going to do it. But it also, Melchizedek went out to meet Abram after the battle. Abram did not have to go looking for Melchizedek. He came out. Now, I think the reason for that is because Abraham had a, rela had a relationship with God. He was tight with God. He was, after that mess up in Egypt, he was doing everything right. So what happens is he's got this relationship going. So when the temptation happens, it's right there. 
He doesn't have to go praying up. He doesn't go searching for God. He has that relationship. God instantly shows up. And I'll tell you how that happens is when you are faced with temptation, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to your mind in a certain way, and you're going to feel that check. We call it the check in your spirit, or your conscience is going to speak to you saying, ah, ah, don't do that. That's God meeting you. Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham. Abraham didn't have to go finding him and look for him. He met him where he was. God will meet you in that point of temptation if your relationship is strong. If it's weak, you're not going to have that Holy Spirit speaking to you as loudly as he would had your relationship be strong. So if you continue walking in faith, trusting in him, and doing your you know, devotional life and living for God, when those temptations are up, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit's going to be there quicken you. The Bible says there's no temptation that is common to man that God won't help us through. So when you're there in that moment of temptation, your closeness to God is going to dictate your choice in that matter. If we're walking with God, you don't have to go looking for God. He's going to already be there. And now we have the Holy Spirit to help us with that. Notice that Abraham also did not impose his convictions on the people who went with him. Verse 24, it says, I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and, share that and, and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anar, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Now, you remember last week we mentioned that these guys, were al- they were allies. They were friends of Abraham. They were on his side. They were not believers. They were not, you know, part of God's covenant at that moment. They were not, they just were his friends. Like we have friends who aren't believers. It's just part of life. You have friends, you have allies. And so these guys were his allies, but they weren't believers. And Abraham did not criticize them for their choices. You know, I see a lot of times we expect other people to act like Christians who aren't Christians. We, ex- we want to impose our, our, our beliefs or our, our faith or whatever on them. All we're called to do is to tell them what Jesus did for us. We're to tell them how Jesus blessed me, whatever the, your testimony is, that's what you're supposed to share, how God did. You can't expect other people to act like you who don't believe like you. And our job is not to push what we believe on them. Our job is to share what God's already done in us. Salvation, a relationship with Christ, is a choice that God allows us to make. He doesn't make you choose. He doesn't force it upon you. He allows you to choose. And once we choose Christ, then God does a transformation in us. And then our lives change. It's not the other way around. We don't get cleaned up, get our life right, and then come to Christ. It happens the other way. You come to Christ totally messed up, or maybe you think you're fine. You come to Christ in either case, and at that point, God transforms you from the inside out. So we can't expect people who don't understand what we believe to act like we act. We can't expect that. We pray for them. We want them to come into a relationship with God. We want them to experience the joy and the the peace that we have, but we can't make them do it. Abraham didn't make his allies do anything. He let them choose for themselves. Now, as Christians, we have a set of standards that we live by, right? Hopefully everybody who's watching this tape, if you're a believer, you have a set of standards you live by. Now, the world does not have those standards. We, we can't expect them to have those standards. They may be similar. They may dovetail at some point. But for the most part, they're not going to be the same as ours. And, you know, you think, how many of your kids have said to you, 
Or as we used to say to our parents, well, Johnny's parents let him do this. And what's your response to that? Say it with me. We're not Johnny's parents, right? So God's our parent. We behave the way God asks us to behave. We can't expect other people to do that. And that's exactly what Abraham did with these guys. He did not make them do anything. He didn't force them to, to give back their stuff. He didn't force them to sacrifice their, their spoils of war. He let them keep whatever they wanted to keep. And, this, and the second thing is, he also didn't make them tithe. Now, two things about the tithing. First, first we expect God's people to tithe. And you all have been awesome and faithful in that. And man, I, I'm just so excited to see what God's doing. Because I know it's God. If we're not here together, we're not here to gather, anything we receive, we know God's working in people's lives. And we, and we thank you for that. And we see the faith in, their life, in your life, and we get to experience it as well. So God, God expects his people to tithe. If you're a guest in our church, you come to visit us when we get together again, and you're a guest, we want to treat you like a guest. You're not expected. We don't expect you to contribute. We want you to enjoy your visit. We want there to be no pressure on you. We want you to see Christ. God's people takes care of God's bills. We want you to enjoy the service. So we don't make other people tithe. God didn't make these guys tithe. There's no obligation. There's no pressure. We want you to enjoy your time in God's house. And because giving has to come from the heart. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. You want to be, have a right heart attitude when you do that. When, we, when believers give, we give as unto the Lord. We want him to use it. We want to honor him with our giving. And we give without any expectation of return. Now, tithing, I heard someone say, tithing is not a bribe for God's blessing. We don't tithe to get we tithe because we've gotten already. I like, there's a quote I found from uh, philanthropist R.G. Letourneau. He said this, if you tithe because it pays, it won't pay. Now, God does challenge us as believers to trust him that he will provide if we give. God wants us to do that. We give first fruits. We give that because we know that God will meet our needs. And for those of you out there who do that, you you. You can't explain it, but 90% goes further than 100%. It's not mathematically possible. I was an accounting guy. It doesn't, it doesn't add up, but it does. It, when you give to God, God always blesses you back. But if we do it in order to get something back, it's not going to work. We do it because we do it out of faith and trust in what God's word says, and we trust him to make up what we need. The second thing about tithing is tithing came before the law. A lot of folks, a lot of believers think that, well, now that we're in the land of grace or the area of grace, the law doesn't apply. Tithing was part of the law, so tithing doesn't apply. Well, as we see here, this was years, hundreds of years before the law was actually given. And yet tithing was part of Abram's worship. You know, think of it this way. If an Old Testament Jew could tithe because the law made him tithe, how much more should we as believers in the New Testament era, era of grace, freely want to give God what he asks us to? And especially because God promised to meet the needs upon our heart. He told us if we do that, he'll, he'll bless us. He will provide what we need. God's our provider. 
Now, we're going to see next week in Abraham's life how God fulfilled a promise to him with, his, with the birth of his son. This has been 75 years before and, and no, no children for Abram. But now we get to see how God is faithful back to Abraham to make him the father of many nations. And I want to close with this. Again, I do this every service. Hopefully, people don't tune me out when we're done because this is the most important part. As I said before in previous tapings, we have a lot of people that watch, maybe people who don't go to church normally, people who just happen to tune into Facebook or whatever at this particular time. And I said it before, there's no accidents or coincidences in God's economy. If you're watching, it's because God has kind of orchestrated for you to watch. Now, you may not think that, but why are you here? Why are you listening? I believe that God put that in your spirit. He put that in front of you and allowed you to, to listen for a purpose. I mentioned earlier that God's gift of salvation is, is a gift. It's freely given, but we have to receive it. I talked about a relationship with Christ, and I, you can't explain a relationship with Christ until you're actually there. But I can tell you what it did for me as my testimony. I can tell you what it did for my family. I can tell you what it has done for other people that I've known over my life. It radically transforms you. It doesn't make you weird. It doesn't make you different. Well, it does make you different. But it makes you someone who now has joy, who now has peace, who now has a relationship with the creator of the universe. And that knowledge, that faith, that relationship dictates the rest of your life. When you get married, your life changes because you now have a spouse and eventually you have kids and Everything you used to be when you're 18, 19, 20 is changed now because of your relationships to people, your wife and your kids. That's what God does. God transforms your life from what, before you actually knew him to when you know him now. That's what the transformation is. If you're 18, 19, 20, you do things a whole lot different than you do when you're 30 and 40. Why? Because life changes, your relationships change, now you have responsibilities and people and kids and family. That's what changes. When God comes into your life, it radically changes. If you're like me, there's no way I would go back to when I was 18, 19, 20, not a chance. Now, if I can go back and do it over again, knowing what I know now, maybe. But no way I'd go back to where it was. Why? Because these relationships have defined me. They, they make me who I am today. Good or bad, they make me who I am today. And that relationship with Christ is kind of who formed me to today. And I wouldn't go back. I know you, if you're a believer, you wouldn't go back either. But if you're watching this and you don't know what we're talking about, it's simply trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we're all sinners. And I don't think anybody would doubt that we're sinners. We do things that we shouldn't do. Even Christians sin all the time. The Bible says we know no one's without sin. The difference is we've been forgiven. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. In other words, when you sin, you're now separated from God. God has no relationship with you. But the Bible also says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ. In other words, you look at Jesus. Jesus suffered for you, for me. He took what should have been my punishment on himself. And all I have to do is acknowledge that fact, not just here, but here. When I realize that God himself took my place, died for me because I was a sinner. 
The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while I hated God, I want nothing to do with God, he still died for me. And because of my belief in that, my trust in that, it changed my life. If you're watching and you want that same transformation, you're, you're not joyful, you're not, you're, not, you're not really experiencing life the way you think you should. It's because you don't have the relationship. You don't have a one-on-one with God. The Bible calls him our Father. God wants you to be a part of his family, but it's up to you to choose. And if you want that choice, I'm going to pray with you now. Maybe you're listening and you've been a part of church all your life, but you've never really committed. You've never prayed, you've never really had a relationship. Or maybe you've never been in church, and you just happen to watch this by, quote, accident. In other words, God chooses to remain anonymous. You're watching this, it's because God's wanting you to watch it. So if you want this relationship that I've been talking about, that Abraham has, and how his life was blessed because of it, I want you to pray with me. Repeat after me if you would. Dear Jesus, thank you, Lord, for saving me, for dying on the cross to pay for my sins. I accept your death as my payment, and I believe in the resurrection that puts a stamp of approval upon everything you've done. I believe my life is changed because of my trust in you. Thank you, Jesus, for all you have done and all that you will do in my life. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, man, we really want to talk to you. We really get some information into your hands. We want to know that you've made that commitment to Christ. We want to see how God's working in you. We want to be a part of that. So encourage us. If you've prayed that prayer or you're rededicating, you've been away from God, you came back, please let us know. Like I said, we're going to be open in about a week or so and under different circumstances and different parameters, but we're still going to be here. And we want you to come be a part of our family as well. God bless you. Have a tremendous week and we will see you hopefully live in person next Sunday. God bless you. Or the 24th, that's it. God bless you.